He just says, I want you to pick up and follow me, and that's what he does, which is amazing to me. Because it just, the Bible just puts it this way. God called Abraham to leave, and he left. That's basically what it says. Called him to leave, he left. So this was an, an outrageous step of faith on Abraham's behalf in order to follow this God who was calling him out of his homeland and from everything familiar to him and walking away from his business and following the Lord. Now, we would not say that Abraham was irresponsible in his response to God. In fact, we would probably, we'll sit back and we will admire Abraham. We think, man, that's the epitome of faith. I mean, just willing to hear God and trust God and just move in confidence with God and without any hesitancy of disobedience or negotiating with God or trying to get God to give you all the details before you make the first move. No, he just gets up and he begins moving forward. A willingness to obey is something that God adores. And it's what God calls faith. So in this series, we have defined faith as this. Faith is simply outrageous trust in God. Outrageous trust in God. Not, okay, God, lay out all the plans and show me every move and how it's all going to work out before I make my first step. No, outrageous trust in God is saying, God, you said it. I believe it. I'm, I'm just moving with you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to do what you say. Even though I don't understand all of the details, I don't understand how it's all going to work out. I don't even know if it's going to work out the way I think it's going to work out. But God, you said it, so therefore, I'm moving forward with you. God is always on the lookout for people who are willing to take their next step with him. Now, if you don't like to be uncomfortable, you won't do that. Because you want God to give you every little minute detail before you take that first step. If you're going to walk in faith with God, you have to learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Because when you take your next step with God, he's always going to push you outside of your comfort zone. That little box that you put yourself into that says, God, I will operate on a level of faith in the context of this box. But please don't out ask me to go outside the boundary of my box that I have myself and you in. But this is what Abraham does. This is the kind of faith that God's looking for. This is what is called outrageous faith. And so the mission of our church is to help people take their next step with God because everyone has a next step. It doesn't matter if you've been walking with God five years, 10 years, or 40 years, God has a next step. And here is why this is so, so important. It's because faith is your lifeline to God. Faith is your lifeline to God. God said in Hebrews eleven six, it is impossible to please him apart from faith. Faith is your lifeline to God, which simply means it is your faith and confidence and trust in your heavenly father that releases his power and his resources from heaven here to earth. This is the way Jesus taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so if faith is your lifeline to God and releasing the resources, his power from heaven to earth, then for goodness sake, we want to learn how to walk in faith, right? And so faith is really the establishing of a trust and a confidence in God that's going to move me forward. And when I move forward with God with that kind of faith and confidence in him, it brings me to greater levels of intimacy, so in any relationship you have, whether it's a marital relationship or the relationship of a friend, the only way intimacy goes deep in that relationship is based upon the level of trust or confidence you have in that person. 
For example, if you meet somebody for the first time, your level of trust and confidence in them is going to be very shallow, as typical of a, a new relationship, right? It takes time to build confidence. It takes time to build trust. And you got to do some life together. And, but the deeper that trust and confidence and intimacy, it goes, right? The intimacy goes deeper and deeper and deeper. I say all that to say this, is that sometimes the reason why God seems so distant to you is because you have reached a level of faith and you refuse to go beyond that level, whatever that level is for you. And so you may, have been, you may have been stuck at this level for the last 30 years. You see, physical age does not guarantee that I have a deep, intimate relationship with God. Being in church for 30, 40, 50 years does not mean I have a deep level of intimacy with God. That intimacy only goes as deep as my faith and my trust and my confidence in him. And so if I'm, if I'm going to deepen that, year in and year out, then I have to move forward with God, which is always going to push me outside of my comfort zone. So I have to learn how to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And does that kind of make sense? So when God called Abraham, and he takes this step of outrageous faith, I mean, his next step carried a very high cost. And oftentimes, Whatever step God's asking us to take is going to carry with it a high cost. Even if it doesn't seem to be working for you at the moment. Even if your next step is something that most people would not do. Even if your next step is this step of obedience that's going to require great sacrifice on your behalf. If you're willing to take the step, it deepens your trust it deepens your confidence in your heavenly Father who releases power and resources from heaven to earth into your life, through your life. And so you are living this relationship with God that just continues to deep, deepen in intimacy and trust and confidence with one another. So having said that, how does God establish this kind of faith in us? What is the means by which he does that? So we're looking at five catalysts that God uses in your life that will, that will take your faith to a whole different level, to the level, hopefully, of outrageous faith, outrageous trust in God, regardless of what God may say. Now, you will not find this list in the Bible. There's five of them that God uses. We looked at one of them last week. We're going to look at the second one this week. We're only taking one a week. But um, everybody who's ever shared their faith story with me or you listen to somebody's faith story, you will find that these are five areas that will intersect with their life as they talk about their faith story, whether their faith is stagnant, whether it's growing, or it's in reverse, or they're walking away. These five areas are going to intersect in that story. So here's the first one we looked at last week, and we'll just kind of review for a moment, and that is practical biblical teaching, practical biblical teaching. All right, Everyone's journey intersects with someone going, you know what? I really didn't really think much about God. I wasn't really interested in God. I wasn't really interested in spiritual things. And, uh, but somebody, you know, maybe a friend or a neighbor, a coworker, somebody invited me to a Bible study. 
And I really didn't want to go, but they promised me dinner afterwards. And so I thought, okay, uh, I'll, you know, I'll sit through the Bible study if you're going to promise me dinner afterwards. You get there, and somebody sits down with the Word of God and just in a very practical way begins to open up God's Word. And you're sitting there thinking, you know what? I never knew that was in the Bible. I, I never dreamed that was in the Bible. I've never heard somebody teach in such a practical way that actually intersects with my life and what it is that I'm facing in life and the, the crisis that I'm, I'm in right now or whatever. Whatever it is, it might be in your life. It might be that somebody invited you to a singles event, and the, at the singles event, they were having a Bible study, and so somebody was practically teaching God's Word. And so this is what Jesus did. Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, he was saying, this is what kingdom people live like. This is what it looks like. And Jesus didn't just start rattling off a bunch of beliefs, like you need to know this, believe this, know this, believe this, know this. No, he says... He gives a few beliefs, but he says, here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to do. Here's how this applies to your life. When somebody offends you, somebody hurts you, and you know, says something about you, against you, here's how you handle that situation. If you're dealing with you know, a tumultuous relationship in your marital life, here's how you handle that situation. So he became very, very practical, and at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, here's what you need to do. If you will build your life on these truths and apply them to your life, here's the key, application. If you apply it to your life day in and day out, God will release his power and his resources. He will come alive in your life, and your life will become dramatically different. It will change over time. And so in essence, what Jesus was saying is this. Faith is not measured by what we believe. Faith is measured by what we do. It does me no good if I never apply what it is I believe. For example, if you're married and you're having marital problems, and let's say you and your wife, you know, you go to all kinds of seminars and you read, you know, 15 books and watch DVR, DVRs and, you know, everything under the sun about how to have a better marriage. But if I never apply what I'm learning, nothing changes in my marriage. That's why people can sit in church for years and hear God's word taught, but if you never make application with what you're learning, nothing changes in your life. You're going to have the same stinking attitude you had when the day you got saved. You're going to have the same emotional turmoil that you've dealt with all of your life. You're not going to experience the power and the healing of God until you take the word of God and you make application of it. So here's the faith factor that we're giving uh, for each one of these steps is this. It's simply that when my obedience intersects with God's faithfulness, my faith grows. When my obedience intersects with God's faithfulness, that is, I'm willing to trust him, I'm putting my confidence in him. Now, what he's asking me to do may not make any sense. It may not seem logical. It may not seem like it will work. But God just says, trust me, obey me, do what I've asked you to do, and, it, and I will do amazing things. And so now you're building your life upon the foundation of God's kingdom, of a kingdom that is in, unmovable and unshakable. That's what Jesus said. The guy who put it into practice, like built his, his house on the rock, when the storms came, it stood. The foolish person who did not apply the, the truths, when the storms came, his house collapsed. 
And so what God is challenging us with is, look, I don't want to live my life panicking, but I want to live my life prayerful and trusting my Father in deeper ways because I have total confidence in him that he's going to provide no matter what it is I need as I'm making my journey maybe through this valley of the shadow of death. Remember what David said, even though I journey through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not going to fear any evil. Because you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then Jesus went on to say, and God will prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Who is your enemy? Your enemy is Satan, the evil one, who does not want you to pray. He wants you to panic. He doesn't want you living peaceful. He wants you living filled with anxiety, fear, and worry. But if I choose to follow God and apply what it is he's telling me to do, and God's making provision, and God's journeying through the valley with me, then that means Satan and his demonic beings have to sit around and watch what God's doing in my life as a result of putting my faith and trust and confidence in him. This is what God wants for your life. This is what ratchets our faith up as we make application. So what we're going to talk about today is the second catalyst that God uses in your life, and that is this, what I call providential relationships, providential relationships. Whenever a person tells their story about their faith journey, they always talk about people, right? Like, I wasn't going to church, really didn't have any interest in church, really didn't have any interest in in the things of God. But then all of a sudden, a couple moved into our neighborhood, and they invited us over for dinner and a Bible study. And we didn't really want to go, but we went, and all of a sudden, you know, God, it just all began to make sense, and God began to move in our hearts and our lives and forever, you know, changed us. Or maybe uh, for you, it was like, you know, I wasn't really interested in spiritual things, but, but then I missed, met this person at work, and, and uh, they just invited me to breakfast and said, hey, how about we just meet once a week? We'll sit down and just kind of read the, the Bible together, and you can ask me questions about the Bible. And I did that, and over time, God God got a hold of my heart, and he changed my life. Or maybe for some of you, you worked for somebody. Your boss was a Christian, and you just noticed there was something very unique about their life. There was a value system, an ethics system uh, that was just not the norm in our culture today, and you were intrigued by that, and all of a sudden, you kind of inquired about that, and, and over time, you built this relationship, and they began pouring themselves into your life. For me, it was, you know, I grew up not in a Christian home. Uh, But when I entered into seventh grade, our family moved, and we moved right next door to a Christian family, and uh, they had a son my age, and he says, hey, how would you like to play on our youth softball team? Okay, I'll play on the youth softball team, uh, but the deal is you got to come to church once a week. Well, I wasn't really down on that, but uh, it's like, oh, okay, whatever. So I would attend youth group on Wednesday nights, and it wasn't all that bad. And so uh, at that time, I was racing motocross, so I wasn't going on Sunday mornings, but I'd go on Sunday nights. And after the service on Sunday nights, there were always a couple in the church, a younger couple, who would invite all of the youth over to their house. Now, we had a huge youth department, so it means we left that house in shambles. But they did this week in and week out. But during that time, over the course of time, God used the hearts and the lives of those couples to God used them to speak deeply into my heart and into my life. And it was there that I met Jesus as my Savior and Lord. And God forever changed the trajectory of my life that was going downhill fast. And all of a sudden, you know, it it had a profound impact on my life. Now, admittedly, the only Christian I knew growing up was my grandmother, and she was old. So I thought Christianity was just like for old people. 
And I thought to myself, you know what, when I, after I've lived my life and done everything I want to do and, you know, lived the way I wanted to live, you know, when I get old, that probably might be a good option at that point in my life because, you know, after all, when you're old, what kind of sin problem can you get into, right? So little did we know. <laughs> so whenever you hear faith stories, it always intersects with relationships, Sometimes it's a conversation. Maybe it might be a series of conversations that you had with somebody, and it may not be even anything that they necessarily said. It might just be that you observed their life. You observed their marriage and noticed that their marriage was so much better than your parents' marriage. Or you observed somebody at work who, who um, tend to be honest and, and didn't lie and didn't cheat and wasn't backbiting and wasn't standing at the water cooler gossiping about everybody. You were intrigued by their lifestyle. You know, when I was in... Uh, High school, in my senior year, I only had to have two classes to graduate, and so I, I worked. Uh, I took my two, two classes in the morning, and then I worked the rest of the day, and I began working for a man whose name was Carl Holler, and Carl, Carl Holler had O.D. Holler and Son Plumbing, and so he hired me, and uh, so I was going to apprenticeship school at night, and he just kind of took me under his wing, and it was really at a very critical juncture in my life because my life could have been going one or two ways, and I, I just observed him, right? As I worked for him, I observed his work ethic. I observed his value system. I observed him as a husband, as a father, and how he bent over backwards to help people. And he never took advantage of people. And if people came in and complained about their bill, he, he didn't just say, well, that's just too bad. This is the men, not, number of hours we work. He had oftentimes would, you know, slash money off the bill and just, just was a man of incredible, incredible ethic. And, and morals, and he just took me under his wing, and I was my life was forever carved somewhat by this man who took me in and, and almost like treated me as his own son. And so all throughout the course of my life, God has always brought relationships across my pathway, because if you know my testimony, I grew up in a single-parent home, so my father wasn't at home, and so God always brought male role models into my life throughout the course of my life that helped me in my faith journey, and that's often in people's stories. What do I mean by providential? Providential means that it's not something that you go out and look for. It's something that God just kind of intersects your life with individuals that he's sending into your life that can help form and fashion your faith walk and oftentimes at very critical junctions in your life. That, that's what a providential relationship is. And so here's the point of today's message. God uses human relationships in order to impact our faith in him. So here's our faith factor. When I see God's faithfulness in someone else's life, if I see God's faithfulness in someone else's life, it is far easier for me to trust him with my life. As I, got, as I saw God working in people's lives and how God had dramatically changed their life as a result of that faith walk with God, man, that, that, that speaks volumes in my life. You know, it was in the youth group that, you know, um, that I met my wife. And so her father's here today, my father-in-law. He had a tremendous impact upon my life um, just watching his faith walk. In fact, there's a sermon I have, I haven't preached it in a long time, it's called 10 Effective Things That a Father Can Do, and five out of the 10 I drew from him. So P 
people that God brings it. Don't just look at people as, oh, well, they're just somebody who's here, there, and gone today, and, and maybe here today and gone tomorrow. God is providentially bringing people across your pathway that will help you in your faith walk with the Lord. Now, some of those relationships may last a lifetime. Some of those relationships may only be the course of a year or six months. It's not the question of the length of time. It's, the, it's what it is that God's wanting to do in your life at that moment in time. Now, here's what the Bible warns us. Do not be, be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. So the flip side is this. It might be that you've had relationships with people who rather than building your faith, they undermined your faith. In fact, they were detrimental to your faith walk with God. And so the Bible warns us, be careful, because every relationship has the potential of either increasing my faith and trust and confidence in God or undermining my faith and my trust and my confidence in God. And so those aren't the relationships you really want to build your life on. You want somebody who's always going to help you ratchet up your your walk with God. I would dare say that some of your greatest regrets in life could be traced back to some relationship in your life. All right, a phone call you wish you never returned, a text message you wish you had never responded to, a date that you wish you never taken, uh, maybe a, a business opportunity you wish you had walked away from, and our greatest regrets, when you trace them back, often go are tied to relationships. I don't know many people who, who look at the regrets in their lives and go, well, that was just all me. You know, I lived in isolation and that was just all me. It's all on me. No, somebody, probably a habit that you have even now that you have problems breaking was established out of the context of a relationship with somebody else. And so we have to be very, very careful. Um, how do we navigate through that? And we'll get to that in a moment. So as a church, what we are very conscious of is that we want to establish context or environments in which people can establish strong, healthy, godly relationships. Uh, some of the ways that we do that is like if you're a follower of Jesus and you want to go deeper in your faith... Uh, it might be you say, hey, pastor, you know, I, I'd like to be discipled. And so we, we have people who disciple others one-on-one. -on -one. We have people who disciple in triads. We, have, we, we encourage you to engage in a small group or to engage in a ministry. Why? Because although providential isn't a forced relationship, but at least we're providing the context by which those relationships might be established. And so that means that all of us have some responsibility, right? So here's where we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9. He says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up, but pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And so Solomon, who wrote this uh, book of Ecclesiastes, and he is, he is reflecting on his life and, and what it is that was healthy for his life, because Solomon, he had some difficulties, okay? He had some bad habits that he got into. If you were to trace back where that habit started, it started in a particular relationship that he had. So he understood that there is, there is um, wisdom 
and being very careful about the relationships you're about to engage in. Because, again, um, the Bible says that bad company can, can corrupt good, good behavior. And so you want to be intentional, right? You have to be intentional about forming these relationships. When God brought people into my life that he was going to use to increase my faith walk, I had to be intentional and follow up on those potential relationships. I could have said, you know what? I don't really care about that. I don't really want that relationship. You know, I, I've got this. I'm a man. I can, I can work it out. You know, no problem. I, I don't need any help. I don't need anybody telling me what to do or what not to do. And so, um, you know, we all need those kinds of relationships. The flip side of that is this. You may be to a point in your faith walk with God that God wants to use you to have a providential relationship with somebody who's, you're up here, they're down here in their faith walk, and God wants you to go down there and help them come up to where you are. And so it may be one or the other. Either you need somebody to help you go up to where they are, or you are up here and you need to go down and help somebody in their faith walk to get to where God wants them to be. So if that's the case, then how do we go about doing that? Well, this is where we go to John chapter 15, and Jesus gives us some help about establishing these, these relationships that God's going to use to forge and to fashion your faith. So the question is, how can I leverage relationships for the sake of building my faith? So we're going to drop into a conversation that Jesus was having his, with his disciples. This is known as the Upper Room Discourse. It's a Thursday night, the last week of Jesus' life before he's crucified. And he's having Passover with his disciples. In John chapters 13 through 17, we, have, we drop in on the conversation that Jesus is having at Passover. Because after this Passover meal concludes, they're going to leave there, go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is going to kind of struggle with God's will. After that, he's going to be betrayed, arrested, go through six mock trials during the course of Thursday night. And by Friday, he's on the cross being crucified for the sins of humanity. So don't you suppose that whatever is like really important is what Jesus wants to talk about? Well, here's the amazing thing. 25% of everything Jesus talks about with his disciples in that upper room discourse has to do with relationships, how to be a friend, how to be a friend, how, how to help people along their faith journey. Jesus says, guys, here's how you've been a friend to me. Here's how I have been a friend to you, and here's the kind of friend that you want to be. So Jesus modeled what kind of friend you want and what kind of friend you should be. So very quickly, here are the three things that he said. You want to find a friend or you want to be the kind of friend, that is, if you're looking for somebody you want to disciple and help them in their faith walk, who faithfully walks with Jesus, who faithfully walks with Jesus. And there's the key word is faithfully. Not like an on-off kind of thing, like they're hot, you know, for Jesus today, but next week you, you can't even find them anymore, right? So a lot of people who are in and out, up and down, all around, but somebody who is like, just like prodding along, it's not like their faith goes like from here to here overnight, it's probably been years in the making, but their faith, they got there somehow, and you want to know, how did you get there? What did God do in your life, and, and how did God propel you to that that level of faith, because that's where I want to be. 
So listen in John chapter 15, beginning in verse 9. It says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Now some of your translations might say that your joy might be overflowing, which is really more of a a better translation. In other words, he's saying to these guys, listen, um, you've been watching me. You've been watching the Father work in me. You've watched my prayer life. And by watching Jesus' prayer life, remember what the disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray. Now, these are guys who prayed three times a day all of their lives. They were growing up, they grew up in a Jewish home. But all of a sudden, there's something unique and different about Jesus' interaction with his heavenly Father that they were missing out on. And so Jesus says, okay, let me teach you how to pray, how to, how to structure your prayer life so you maximize what it is that God wants to do through that relationship. And he says, Jesus says, keep my commands, and my joy is, is going to be full. It's going to be overflowing. In other words, full here doesn't mean like, like if you have a washing machine and you pull out the little drawer where you're putting your laundry detergent in there, for like it's liquid, and it has a little line there that says full, like you go up to the line and stop, but then if the kids are fighting and you got your, your head turned this way, then you, you, you keep pouring and it overflows, you got a mess. That's the word he's using here, a joy that overflows. Now, I don't know this by experience when it comes to washing machines, I'm just telling, just by observation. So it means to be full to the point of overflowing. It's like eating too much at Thanksgiving, right? You know what happens at Thanksgiving? You've eaten so much that you've unbuttoned your pants, but some of you are, um, you know well enough what's going to happen at Thanksgiving meal, so you wear stretchy sweatpants from the outset so, you know, things can expand, right? And so you're thinking, oh, I I can't eat another bite, I can't eat another bite. Somebody's got dessert, right? So this is, this is kind of the word that's being used here, a joy that's, that's overflowing, that is, is spilling over into the lives of other people. This is the kind of friend that will work with you and walk with you and share truth with you in a very, very loving way. Every time, listen, they're going to point out every mistake you make. They're there to encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Um, John chapter 1 and verse 14 says this, The word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, glory as the, only, as the one of the, of the Father, speaking of Jesus, full of grace and truth. See, if somebody's going to help me ex- ex- grow in my faith, they need to speak truth to me, but they have to do it in a grace-filled way. In other words, it's not like, I'm going to just kind of rip you up one side and down the other because you didn't follow God and you didn't obey that and look the mess that you made and you're no good and you'll never amount to anything. No, 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 no. That just destroys people. When Jesus interchanged with people, even his disciples, when they made huge, huge mistakes, here's what Jesus said. Okay, let's sit down and talk about this. What went right? What went wrong? Where do you think you made a mistake? Okay, we made a mistake. Well, let me, let me share a few things with you, grace-filled, share a few things with you. Now let's go back out and try it again. Sometimes they go back out and try it again. They come back, still didn't work. All right, well, let's talk about it. What went right, what went wrong? So this is the kind of relationship that you want with somebody who's going to help you because not all friendships are created equal. 
So I've given you a little equation on your outline that says this. The length of time plus the depth of a relationship equals the level of intimacy. This is very, very important. You see, if you establish a brand new relationship with somebody, the length of time is what? Very short. How, how deep is that relationship? Very shallow. So what's the level of intensity? Not very deep. So if I have a brand new relationship, let's say I just met you, and uh, you know, we go somewhere, let's say we go to a ball game together, and we're sitting there eating our hot dogs and watching the ball game, and all of a sudden you turn to me and say, you know what, Pastor, uh, I got a few things I want to tell you. And you start like just like diving into very deep issues in my life. How do you think I'm going to respond? Whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 no. You have not earned the right yet to take me to that, to that place. Why? Because there's not been much, no time in a relationship. There's no depth in the relationship. Therefore, the level of intensity, you just can't. Die. That's why people say all the time, you can't say that to me. You don't know me. You, don't, you can't judge me. You can't. Why? Because you, you have no depth of relationship with this person. But if I establish a relationship and we walk together, this is what discipling is about. Discipling is not about me just pouring information into your mind. Discipling is about doing life together. This is what Jesus did with his disciples. He didn't just sit them in a classroom and say, well, here's your notebooks. Let's fill in the blanks of everything. And once you've got them all filled in, well, you're good. <laughs> no, he did life with them. And so what happened over time? That relationship he had with his disciples, it began to grow in time. It began to grow in depth. And it began to grow in intensity. So as Jesus entered into the last few months of his life, he took his disciples into very intense discussions because he was about to leave his ministry into their hands in order to take that to the entire world. So um, how long you've known someone and how deep that relationship goes, if you know somebody knows you for a long time and they love you and they don't want something from you, they want something for you, you can go on a real deep, deep level. So anyone who's ever discipled someone knows now listen, we don't, we don't start off on deep, intense stuff the first time we meet together. No, we have to build a relationship. We do life together. And as the breadth of time and the depth of that relationship goes, then goes deeper the intensity of the questions and how we're going to respond to each other. Here's the second thing. Find a friend or be a friend who gives more than what you take. Who gives more than what you take. Here it says in verse 12. My command is this, that you love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I have commanded. You are my friends if you do what I've commanded. And so Jesus' definition of love in these verses is not that we just love people any way we want. Uh, that's not his definition. His definition is what? That we are to love the way that he has loved us. All right, he's saying to his disciples, all right, I've been loving you, and uh, we've, we've gone on some you know, deep love journeys together, <clears throat> and we've struggled with some issues. Now, I want you to, in turn, to love other people the way that I have loved you. When Jesus gave his Sermon on the Mount, he said it this way, I want you to treat other people the way you want to be treated. We commonly call that what? The golden rule. You want to erase racism? 
if everybody in the world treated everybody the way that you want to be treated, things would go a whole lot better in the world. If we could just follow that one rule. But people can't do that, right? Because our hearts are too damaged and, uh, and you know, we have this sin issue we got going on inside of us and pride and all these other things. And so Jesus is saying, listen, you love others the way that I have loved you. Treat others the way that I have treated you. That is the platinum rule. So a real friend is someone who will sacrifice for you. Did Jesus sacrifice for his disciples? Absolutely he did. All the time. So if, if, I want, if I'm looking for a, a friend who's going to help deepen my faith walk with God, or I want to be that friend, then I know that there, I am signing up for a level of sacrifice that is above and beyond the normal. And so because you're always trying to take that relationship, you're, you're, you're giving and you're giving, but you're not necessarily receiving a lot in return. Now, if you get into a relationship with somebody that you're giving, 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 and they only take, 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 that's not a relationship. That, my friend, is a um, flesh-eating bacteria. You need to cut it out and remove it, right? Because as Dr. Henry Cloud would say, you've got to set boundaries, right? Healthy boundaries in your life. So um, friendship, C.S. Lewis wrote a, a book called The Four Loves, and in that he talked about the necessity of friendship, but that investment of friendship has to go in both directions, Right? So it's just, again, I can't be doing all the giving. In other words, if I start discipling somebody, and let's say we're three months into this. I'll give you an example out of somebody. I had a discipling relationship with somebody. The guy was, was a drug addict coming out off drugs, and, and since you know, I have that part in my, my past, and so I'm discipling, discipling, and you know, three months into this, it's just give, 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 but he's not doing anything in return. I mean, he's not... He's not reading what I've asked him to read, even though it's just very, you know, like it might have been a, a chapter in a Bible, or he's not doing anything. So after time goes by, what, what do I do to conclude? Well, he's not into this, right? He's, he's not going to do this. And so we had this, we severed the relationship. We severed the discipleship relationship because he just wasn't ready. But when you have a person who's ready, who's, who's wanting to go deeper in their faith and their trust in the Lord, um, you, you want to be the friend, though. You know, you're giving, but you, you also have to expect some things in return that you're asking them to do. Here's what Solomon said, uh, who was the king over Israel, Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. So it's the kind of friendship that um, we can deal with difficult stuff without somebody getting in their feathers all ruffled. Like, if, if I have somebody discipling me, and I always try to keep somebody in my life who's discipling me because I've not reached the, 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 you know, I've not reached the pinnacle. I want somebody, somebody who's beyond where I am. You know, they have permission to ask me the hard questions. They have permission to, to take me to task. And one of those individuals, my family, like my wife, she's always getting on to me about Sabbath rest. Sabbath rest. So um, I received my um, Father's Day gift from my daughter that lives in North Carolina, and it was a book, How to Take Hurry Out of Your Life. You think they're trying to send me a message? I think they are. But that's okay. Proverbs 26 says, Many a man claims to have unfailing love, but a faithful man who can find. This is why you have to put yourself out there. I want to find friends like that who will be with me and stand by me, who will not abandon me in my time of need. Now, friendship in our day and time is a little lackadaisical. 
Like most people, if, if they've met somebody three times, well, they're my friend. Well, they're, on, I get, they're, on, they're friends with me on Facebook. I got a thousand friends on Facebook. Like, so like those are like all really deep friendships, right? Well, well, no, they're not. Some of your enemies are still in your friend category on Facebook, right? And so they post things about you behind your back. Just thought I'd let you know. Friendship in the Hebrew culture meant a covenant relationship. You're cutting a covenant that says, I will be with you, stand by you, walk with you. I will not give up on you. We will go through thick and thin, highs and lows. We're going to do life together because I want to see you succeed in your faith walk with God. That's the kind of friend you want to look for. That's the kind of friend you want to be if you're going to help people progress in their faith and their trust and confidence in their Heavenly Father. Here's the third one. Find a friend or be the kind of friend who believes you have what it takes. That believes you have what it takes. He says, I no longer, verse 15, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. And said, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me. This is the important. You want to underline this. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Now, let me wrap this up real quick. In Jesus' day and time, there are many rabbis. You know, Jesus is called a rabbi, which means teacher. There were many rabbis in his day and time. They were interpreters of God's law. And they also built a framework around God's law concerning values and morals. And so different rabbis had different interpretations of the Torah or the law of God. And so these rabbis uh, had their interpretations. So they oftentimes taught in the schools when the children are there in the, in, in the Jewish synagogues. And, and so as you grew up and you progressed through school, the rabbis wanted to duplicate themselves. They wanted, to, they wanted to duplicate people who thought like they thought, interpreted the law like they interpreted the law, had the same morals and values and ethics as they had. And so um, they would, uh, after you reached a certain age, um, you were a student, you, you, kids aspired, young men aspired, sorry ladies, young men aspired to, be, to walk after a rabbi, to be a student, a disciple of a rabbi. And so when you reach that particular age and you're about to finish school, you would pick out which rabbi that you wanted to, to appeal to to be his disciple. And so let's say, for example, this rabbi, he's got like 10 young men who are following him and they're listening to his teachings and, and they're, they're, they're saying, you know, I want to be like this rabbi. Oh, he just amazes me with his teaching about the law and his lifestyle. And this is who I want. And so you would follow him and, and the rabbi would take them through a series of questions and a lot of different gymnastics. But for, in the rabbi's mind, he only wanted the cream of the crop. All right, so... When he came to a point in this relationship, disciple relationship, he would say to those who didn't make it, listen, um, this isn't cutting it. I'm going to lay hands on you. I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to send you back to your father's business. And that's what you need to do. You're not smart enough. You're just not, you're just not going to be able to make it. This happened all the time. Now, Jesus being a rabbi, notice very carefully what he said. See, in all other rabbis, the rabbis didn't choose the students. The, cho the student chose the rabbi first, and the rabbi determined whether or not this person was smart enough, good enough, 
able enough to duplicate him. Jesus said to his disciples, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Now listen very carefully. When did Jesus choose his disciples? Well, you go to Matthew chapter 4. You got Peter and Andrew. You got James and John, the sons of Zebedee. What were they doing? They were fishing. In other words, they weren't the cream of the crop. They couldn't make it with other rabbis. They were in their father's business. And Jesus came along and said, follow me. Follow me. And the Bible says they dropped their nets and they followed him. So that means that the father of James and John, when he went home that night, and mama asked, where's my boys? Well, the rabbi from Galilee called them to follow him. They've dropped their nets and they're following him. She wouldn't have been mad. She would have been elated. He's the cream of the crop. They're going with Rabbi Jesus. For Jesus to say, come and follow me, he's saying, in essence, I believe you have what it takes to be like me. That is the call that Jesus has issued to every single one of you. Come, follow me. I believe you can become just like me. But in every faith walk, Jesus uses people to help us to become like him. And he establishes these providential relationships throughout the course of our lives that intersect with our lives so that our faith and trust and confidence in our Heavenly Father deepens and we walk in obedience. And as a result of that, God releases his power and his resources and we experience God and it just drives us deeper and deeper in our faith walk, in our intimacy, in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. As I look back over my own life and the providential relationships God sent into my life, it is what began my journey of faith And it's what continues my journey of faith. And so I just appeal to you, what is your next step? For some of you, you need to attach yourself to somebody or try out of people or get in a small group, get in a ministry, get yourself engaged in relationships and an environment where those relationships, providential relationships can happen because you need somebody to help take you deeper in your walk with God. For others of you, you need to be the one seeking out people that you can help bring them up in their faith and their relationship and to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the way God has designed the local church. We all need one another. Let's bow our heads together. Now, if you're here this morning and um, the first relationship that you need to establish, for some of you maybe, your next step is a relationship with Jesus himself. And so the Bible is very clear. The reason Jesus came into this world was to show us what God the Father is really like and to provide us the way by which we could enter into this relationship with our Heavenly Father who longs for a relationship with you, who desires to open up the windows of heaven and to pour out his power and his blessing and his resources into your life. He wants you to have a life of confidence and trust in him. He wants you to have a life that is built upon a foundation that is immovable and unshakable. 
But the only pathway by which we can go from where we are into God's presence is through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, that no one comes to the Father except by me. Why is that? Because all of us incurred a debt that we owed to God for our sin. And Jesus is the one who made payment for that sin. It was the shed blood of Christ that provides for forgiveness. There's nothing you and I could ever do to pay God back for what we've done. But here it is. He's never asked you to. He says, I see the problem. I'll address the problem. I'll provide a substitute for the problem. And I will make a pathway into my presence. And his name is Jesus. It is a gift that God offers to us. It's a gift that God offers to you. And like any gift, you must receive it. God will not force himself on you. He will not force a relationship on you. He desires relationship, but he'll not force it. And so if you want to enter into that relationship with Jesus, you just simply acknowledge before the God who created you. Yes, I have sinned against you. I have I've done many things to mess up my life and I've made a lot of mistakes and, and done a lot of things I wish I'd never done. But I believe that Jesus came into this world to demonstrate your love for me by dying in my place and making the provision necessary that you, oh God, might forgive me of all of my sins, past, present, and future. I desire a relationship with you. And so this morning, I am embracing Jesus to be Savior and Lord of my life. I'm putting my hope, my faith, and my trust in no one else but him. If that's the desire of your heart, if that is the statement of faith you are making before God, God says, that's it. That's it. And now all of a sudden, God moves within you. And he has now forgiven you of your sins. He's canceled that debt. He's indwelling you with the presence of his Holy Spirit. He's baptizing you into the body of Christ. And God says, now, now let's walk together for the remainder of your time here on earth. Let's walk together. Let's build a life together of trust and confidence, of deep abiding faith. I want to have a deep level of intimate relationship with you. So I thank you, Father, for anyone here this morning maybe who's listening online, who's prayed that prayer in their heart, just exercising that faith towards you. God, I pray that they will tell somebody else, that they will share with somebody that they've made that step of faith with the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that for those who are here, that before you leave, you will share that with somebody. For those who are out watching online, you will share somebody in your home or a friend or a co-worker that you might take your next step with God. So thank you, Father, for loving us being so gracious and kind to us all the days of our life. Thank you, Father, that you did not create us for time, but you created us for eternity, and one day we'll be in your presence where there will be no more sorrow or sickness or death. All the things that sin has brought into the world, you will have eradicated out of the world. And so, Father, we look forward to that day in which we will spend eternity with you. In Jesus' name, we pray and ask these things. Amen. So let's stand. We're going to sing a closing song. Thank you for being here this morning. I trust and pray that God has spoken to your heart in some way. I'll be here after the service. We'd love to speak with you, pray with you, anything that you need before you leave. Um, yeah, let's just celebrate the Lord and, and have a great Father's Day.